0: Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. It's your host, Robert Hunt, where I look at the week's financial news. That can be a little misleading, uncertain, take you off course, and I hope to make it actionable, understandable, and clear. What a week, what a show. We're going to be looking at one of my podcasting brethren. Yes, you may assume that all podcasters are virtuous after listening to this podcast for years and years. However, there are those amongst us who are nefarious. We will look at one of those, a cash flow podcaster. And what lessons we can learn from the fraud that he perpetuated. We'll also look at a question that has been coming up more for folks that have access to a pension. And that is, should you take the bite out? So the author Anne turguson talks us through that. And then... In closing, we're going to look back at a hedge fund meltdown that they say rescued our stock portfolio. A little long-term capital management, but at the top, cash flow podcaster made off with millions. I just said made off. I meant just made off. But it immediately gave me that Bernie Madoff sensation. But this cash flow podcaster made space off with millions in Ponzi schemes, SEC alleges. Now, that is not the Southeastern Conference, that is the Securities and Exchange Commission. For my University of Texas and OU listeners, who are anticipating not only moving to the Southeastern Conference, but the game, we are actually talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission. So, common mistake. This gentleman, Matt Motil, defrauded investors out of millions. He described himself as a cash flow king according to his social media presence and promised uh, to teach investors how to leverage, quote, rental real estate investments to help get you paid and live a lifestyle you want. This gentleman, Motil, filed for bankruptcy in Ohio in 2022. So what happened here? Uh, An Ohio podcast host, oh dear, ran an $11 million Ponzi scheme that defrauded more than 50 investors with false claims of helping them become a real estate investing... Now, we're keeping the language clean here on the RHF Market Update, but donkey, okay? Bad donkey. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission alleged Monday, Matt Motiel described himself, that like cash flow king. How was he able to do it? What lessons are there for us? Well, he described himself was a success, had an elaborate facade, you can only imagine what that was like in Ohio, I bet it was pretty great. He also lied, so this is where, as investors, we gotta know our stuff, and you may, I may have mentioned this on the podcast, but I used to work for a receiver, no, not Jerry Rice or Randy Moss or Justin Jefferson, I worked for a securities and exchange receiver, who takes in one of these Ponzi schemes, a lawyer, and helps sort through it. As part of my job, I was charged with actually calling the investors and updating them and uh, telling them what was going on, asking them how they were doing, if they understood what was happening. And in every single case, the the fraud case I worked on was an oil and gas case. Not so different from this. Just oil and gas instead of real estate. In just about every case, the investors had almost zero knowledge of the industry. I'm going to say close to zero. What they were promised was yield. Now in this instance, this is amazing. I mean, the article explains in one instance, according to the SEC, Motil managed to get a million bucks from 20 investors for just one of a single family homes valued at 130000 meaning he was advertising to all these people, oh yeah, you're going to own a, a, a first lien mortgage on this property, but he sold it multiple times so it's like having one piece of property selling it 20 times all these people think they have a interest and then when it's time to divvy it up turns out whoops none of us own anything this Motil said he would be flipping but what could have happened do you think to keep these investors from harm anytime i tell these stories i'm quick to remind myself and i will remind you the listener this can happen to anybody we can be presented with something that our ears with easy profits, no work, low risk, and a talented gentleman to pull it off. That's usually how it goes. But what could have been done? Well, title work. A seasoned investor in the space of home flipping would, upon doing some due diligence, say, okay. Great. So I have a first lien mortgage that I'm buying. Well, I'm very interested in the title, meaning who actually owns this real estate that Mr. Motil says I own. And in doing a little research, but that would have taken some work. You would have been able to say, Ah, this just doesn't sound right. Eh, this doesn't look good. Um, now he, this this gentleman Motil. He forged signatures and he misused a notary's seal to continue his fraud. So that really is aggressive. But you can see how this could happen to anybody. A high yield, an investment that we think we understand. Hey, um, this gentleman's borrowing money and buying homes and flipping them. How could this be so hard? And at the end of the day, it's just a wipeout. So got to stick with what we know. If we don't know, we got to pay the price of expertise, which usually involves years, not months and mistakes along the way to earn the right to invest in an asset class like this. So let's be willing to keep that investing simple if we don't know what's going on. And then in the pension world, we don't talk about pensions a lot on the Robert Hunt Financial Market Update. Why is that? Well, like the Alabama Crimson Tide winning streak, it's just they're becoming more rare. Okay, so much like Nick Saban is struggling to win without a quarterback, the pension is kind of a dying breed where it's not as common. Most of my peers, I'm a millennial, do not have access to a pension. Now, there are some exceptions. Of course, there are exceptions. But because of that, it's rare that I have a uh, financial planning question related to a pension. But I've noticed they're kind of popping up. They do pop up. I uh, work for an employer, a governmental agency, or just an employer who's hung on to the pension. Right now, a lot of these pensions are offering buyouts. Now, why are they offering buyouts? Well, they they have the ability to start offering these buyouts. Interest rates are up. Pensions are actually feeling a little better. So, pension wants to play the law offense, start knocking out some of the, off these liabilities. So, there's an article here, Ann Turgeson headline, Should I Take a $44,000? lump sum or keep a a $423-a-month pension. The reporter crunches the numbers. So uh, I thought this article was neat because it actually is testimonial in nature. So uh, various newspaper houses, I guess, have had access to pensions in the past. And this article describes this author, Ann Turgeson, and her decision making. Now I believe there's a lot more than dollars and cents here. Ms. Turgeson rightfully shows kind of the way you should be thinking about this when someone offers you a lump sum versus these these payouts. You can ask yourself, well, what is an equivalent financial product that could simulate a pension? Because what is a pension? I know not all the listeners know what a pension. Defined benefit plan. So with a pension, you have so many years of service at an employer, and that gives you a check that you don't have to worry about whether the stock market's up or down. For the most part, the pension's going to handle all that. You just get a check. Pretty nice. And you can set it up to where it's just on you or just you and your spouse. um, Typically, they're just flat, which makes inflation scary. But they're really simple. They don't make the pensioner do or think about a lot. Other than this this question here, do I take the payout? So this, this author said, hey, she asked the New York Life how much it would cost to buy this deferred annuity that would pay this $423 a month starting at 65. The answer, 55 grand, which means the pet would be 11 grand short of what she'd need. So, all right. Chuck went up for the pension. There then is always the case, what if I just pulled it and invested in the stock market? Well, the author says, what if I just put it in an index fund? Ooh, that's interesting. The math is usually in favor of this, usually when you look at historic returns. You're taking the risk off the pension fund, put it on yourself, but then you're getting the upside. So Ms. Turgeson backs into some numbers and says, Well, this would be good. I could make more money. All this might depend on your estate plan and heirs and risk. But I like her reasons. She ends up taking the um, 44 grand and uh, I think that's a fine decision. I like I like the pension for a lot of people. Now, why would I say that? Don't I love investing on my own? Don't I love index funds? Don't I love keeping that investing simple, time rising long? Well yeah, I do, but I also love taking the ball out of, out of the client's hands. I like the ball taking the ball out of my hands with a pension fund. You get a check. You do nothing. You do not put yourself in a position where you have to make decisions on the market and you let the pension fund take the market risk. So I see it as a nice way to balance things. If You have access to a pension. You probably have access to stocks as well. So it'll be a nice mix. Pension can act a bit like a bond for you. So I lean towards, unless every situation is different, but I actually want people to really think long and hard before they elect to take the payout. I want to th- I want them to think long and hard. This this author ends up saying, "Hey, I'm going to take the 44 grand and roll it into an IRA where it can grow tax deferred." So I think that's cool too. Um, but and and it was inflation that spooked this this author. We'll see. I like for a lot of people hanging on to the pension. The more I work as a financial advisor, the more I just know myself. We have met the enemy in investing, and it is us. So when I can solve for that and keep it simple, I go for it. And in that case, um, that's going to be giving the pension a real shot. So in closing, uh, last article. The hedge fund meltdown that rescued your stock portfolio. Long-term management. It's collapsed 25 years ago. Started a hard habit to break the quote, Fed put, close quote. Well, we're gonna to have to learn some terms, but we can do it, RHF right, Nation. Put. All right, what is the Fed? What is the put? The Fed is the Federal Reserve, that that governing body that dictates the price of money with that Fed funds rate. And the put is an agreement to sell. So this is options parlance. If you and options just like uh, you have an option to get ice cream at the fair. You don't have to buy the ice cream, but you have an option. Well, sometimes people will buy options to buy securities or sell securities. An option to buy securities is a call. An option to sell securities is a put. This Fed put means, and this, was, this phraseology was popularized by a lot of investors, they thought, oh, this is great. I can always just, I always have the Federal Reserve to back me up. It's a, it means I get to sell kind of when I want, when I need to. Because the Fed will always lower rates if the stock market drops. This article explains that. And what I, one thing that I thought was important, note it's, I have to remind myself of this. The article begins. This is uh, by Justin Lahart. It says the hedge fund, this long-term capital management, with its dream team of finance luminaries, including Nobel Prize winners, thought it had found a way to make a bundle with what seemed like hardly any risk. The banks that lent it billions of dollars believed them. When the fund strategy fell apart, Federal Reserve officials coordinated an unprecedented fund strategy rescue. All right, but let's go back. Back, 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 back. I just want to empathize with every investor in in this um, long-term capital management portfolio. Nobel Prize winners, huge... I mean, a bank basically prices risk for a living. So you had all these banks looking to price the risk, saying, ah, this is fine. They were all wrong. All of them were wrong. It's another lesson to us. Be wary. Those, those tried and true paths are well-worn for a reason. And oftentimes, it's a good thing to stay in those paths. When someone tells you you can make a bunch without risk, they are fighting against gravity. Don't follow them, even if they've won a Nobel Prize, even if they attended Texas A&M. I don't care if they attended whatever university. Don't follow them. Even if they have a podcast, don't follow them. But what, what happened here, what they show in financial history is the stock market would drop and the Federal Reserve would lower this federal funds target rate, this price of money. Whoa! What does that do? That, that means there are going to be more buyers who are going to look at stocks because that, as a risk asset becomes more interesting, the lower the rates are. You can kind of feel what's happening now as rates get higher people get a little less interested in risk assets like real estate in the stock market. They'll just stick with bonds. Well, the inverse is true when the Federal Reserve lowers rates. All of a sudden, people look around and say, well, better put my money somewhere. So they talk about 1998, 1999, for my listeners who are around for that. And then the 2008 financial crisis. So there's this history of the Federal Reserve, a governing body that sets the price of money, lowering rates when the stock market's in trouble, and then it, the article explains that kind of puts investors to sleep in a way because there's always this Fed put, this ability to sell because the Federal Reserve will always be there for you as a backstop. If the stock market falls too much, hey, look, the Federal Reserve will lower the price of money and bail you out like they did with long-term capital management, like they did in 2008. But hold on. What this article explains is, hey, there's evidence that this this relationship may not last. There's less connection now. Okay, so the, the article says the Fed might now have less cause to worry about the effects of falling stocks. Stock market wealth effects appear much less pronounced. Last year, the S&P 500 fell by 25% from its January peak to October low. I kind of forgot that. You guys ever forget that? Oof. Show you how quickly you forget stuff. But that didn't provoke discussion about how the bear market was going to affect American spending. So, To me, this is a great reminder of let the investor beware. We cannot always think the stock market will always go up or that the Federal Reserve will be there to bail us out. The data points I I use to remind people, of: okay, you think the stock market's for you? You think you're going to invest forever? You're still underwater if you're a Japanese investor from 1998 to present. Still underwater. In the United States, if you invested at the high in 1929, it took until 1954 to get back. The stock market is not some wealth machine. You pull a lever, money comes out. Hardly. So this should sober us up that we cannot depend on the government to bail out the stock market. We've got to orient ourselves in the right way as investors to give ourselves the best chance, the best probability of success. And how do we do that? Keep those costs low, keep that investing simple, and keep that time horizon long. As you know, that's going to give you the best shot on your investing journey. Until next day.